Okay, let's bow our heads in prayer and commit this, uh, this study into our Lord's hands. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning, that as we open up your word and go through the account here in Joshua chapter 10, we pray, Father God, that you'd speak to our hearts and speak to our minds, that we would all receive a word for us individually, personally, that we can take to our hearts, that would nourish us and encourage us. We recognise, Lord, that you are the source of life. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak words of life into our hearts and minds this morning, that we might be encouraged forward in our walk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's uh, turn to Joshua chapter 10. And uh, we will continue our studies this morning. We're doing verses 1 to 27. So we're not doing the whole chapter this morning. Uh, but we're looking at uh, Joshua and uh, the battle with the five Amorite kings. So, Joshua chapter 10. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to, uh, to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. Joshua's battle strategy in the campaign into Israel was very simple. He would come in from the middle, uh, through to Jericho, on to Ai, and then with the um, uh, treaty that he'd made with Gibeon, he'd effectively divided the country in half. And it was, a, it was a strategy of divide and conquer. And then he would then go into the south with a southern campaign to take the southern cities. And after that, go north to take the northern cities. And in the second half of Joshua chapter 10, we will see the south southern campaign, which we'll do in the next time. And then in chapter 11, we see the northern campaign. But before Joshua has the ability to move forward with the campaign that he has planned, we see that uh, this man, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, will call together a, a confederacy of five kings and five armies to make a preemptive strike. And uh, uh Really, we see that Adonai Zedek here is the king of Jerusalem. And this is the first time Jerusalem is mentioned in Joshua. It has been referred to before in Scripture. Uh, in fact, Ian mentioned it on Monday night. In Genesis 14, verses 18 to 24, Jerusalem is mentioned as the place where Melchizedek uh, came from. And he met with Abraham after he had defeated an alliance of four kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of the spoils. Then Jerusalem was simply called Salem. Salem is the same root word for shalom, which means peace. And Jerusalem means teaching of peace. But at this moment in time, Jerusalem is not in the ownership of Israel. It's in the ownership of this king called Adonai Zedek. And he had heard, he'd received reports from around the land about the defeat and the destruction of Jericho and Ai. And uh, he also heard about this peace treaty that had been made with Gibeon, uh, with Israel. And Adonai Zedek's uh, reaction was twofold. His first reaction was fear. Fear of um, the 
victories that Israel had won and also fear inspired by the fact that Gibeon had made a treaty with Israel. Now we know that that treaty was done under the guise of deception but Gibeon was a royal city. It was uh, one of the foremost cities in that region of Canaan and the people of that city weren't any old Joe, Tom, Dick and Harry. They were mighty men. They were they were great warriors. And yet their fear of Israel was such that they sued for peace instead of going to war. And so that which would have been a great ally in the battle against Israel had gone over to Israel's side. And that stirred up feelings of anger and vengeance inside of Adonai Zedek. And he purposed to take Gibeon because he didn't want Gibeon to be allied with Israel and increase Israel's might. Now we know that fear was the default position of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and based upon the report that we've received from Rahab in chapter 2 we know that that fear really dated back to the crossing of the Red Sea uh, by the Israelites many years before, over 40 years before. And so there was clearly a, a well trodden history of the movements of Israel that was known to the Canaanite inhabitants Uh, and this fear escalated as Israel's campaign progressed forward Um, and with every city that fell and with the treaty that was made this really increased the fear within Adonai Zedek and the other people in the land and uh, What's interesting is Adonai Zedek demonstrated fear of defeat, fear of man, but there was no fear of God in him. The one type of healthy fear was lacking. And uh, whereas the Gibeonites, although they had used deception, had demonstrated a fear of God, which ultimately would lead to their salvation. And of course, this made them despised in the eyes of the Amorites. You know, it's interesting how uh, Adonai Zedek's perception of the Gideonites shifted the moment they aligned themselves with the people of God. The moment they aligned themselves with God. And people's estimation in the world of an individual will always shift in the light of that individual turning to God. Those who were once held in high esteem, uh, like Gibeon, will be despised. Those who were considered strong will then be looked at as being weak. And those who were once allies and friends will become adversaries and enemies. We saw this most notably, of course, in the life of Paul, who was once the champion of the Sanhedrin in persecuting the church. But the moment he had his Damascus Road experience and turned to Jesus Christ... He became public enemy number one. And we shouldn't be uh, surprised that when we make our faith known, when we make a stand for Jesus, when we turn to Jesus, then we too will find ourselves facing new adversaries and people's opinions of us will shift and change. And you will find as you progress forward with your walk with Jesus Christ, you will find more adversaries um, coming across your path and those that you thought were allies will turn against you but I would uh, bid you to remember Philippians 3 verse 8 where Paul says yet indeed I also count all things loss 
for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. You need to do a, a an evaluation and work out what's more important in your life, your friendship with this individual or with that group, or gaining Christ. Who is the most important person in my life? Because every step forward in your walk with God will come at a cost, but it will also come with a reward and increased blessing. We go on in verses 3 to 5. Therefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. And therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jamuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up. They and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So here we have a picture of the uh, of the land of Canaan and the pink area shaded there is the uh, part of the land that was conquered after the northern and southern campaigns. And we can see that Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, was located here. And uh, we see that Hoham, king of Hebron, was located here. Piram, king of Jamuth, was located here. Japhia, king of Lachish, was located here. And Debir, king of Eglon, was located here. So they're all in the same area. And the commonality about that area is that it is hill country. So it's a mountainous region with lots of rocks and it's much higher in elevation than Gilgal, where the base of Israel is um, located. In fact, there is a 3,000 foot ascent from Gilgal up to where um, Jerusalem and uh, um, Hebron and so forth are. Now, when people faced with the reality of God, there is only one of two reactions. When you're faced with the reality of God, there's only one of two reactions. You either surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ or you act in defiance against the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, Adonai Zedek and this uh, has seen more than enough evidence of the reality of the God of the Israelites. But instead of coming to a place of surrender, he chooses defiance. There is no way he was going to submit to the God of Israel. There was no way he was going to go the way of Gibeon. This alone illustrates that Canaan was ripe for judgment. This defiance within him and those that he draws an alliance with just want to oppose the people of God. And it's interesting, their focus of their anger is not Israel, but it's Gibeon. And their armies unite and they surround the city of Gibeon and they lay siege to it. And so we read on in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Gibeon, having deceived Israel into a binding covenant, now have Israel on speed dial. And Israel are duty bound to uh, respond quickly to any 999 call that they call. 
And uh, the moment the Gibeonites see this coalition of five Amorite kings on the horizon, messengers are sent out and they can make a beeline for Gilgal. And once they get to Gilgal, the message they bring is emphatic. Save us. Help us. Do not forsake us. Come up quickly to us. And I'm sure this is a call that uh, Joshua didn't want to take. He had enough things on his plate without a... uh, a distress call from Gibeon coming his way. Um, but, you know, here the Gibeons, Gibeonites calling in favours already. And, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of some of the calls that I get as being a plumber. I've got a bond with a certain customer. And so they've got me on speed dial and uh, they call and everything is urgent. Come quickly, save us. The toilet isn't working. We've got a leak, wherever it is. And they want me to drop everything and just go in their direction. And unfortunately, that is not always possible. I do the best I can. And, uh, you know, their problems aren't as severe as, you know, a whole army of Amorites gathering around them. But to them, a drippy tap or a dodgy toilet is uh, the pinnacle of problems. But uh, Joshua honours the covenant, we see, that, that was made with the Gibeonites in verse 7. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valour. Joshua honours the covenant. Whatever his personal feelings may have been, he is a man of his word. And so we see here how these five kings aligned themselves and they mounted the attack upon Gibeon. But how on the green line here, we see the armies of Israel draw in to go toward Gibeon to come to their defence. So Joshua assembles the forces of Israel along with the mighty men of valour and they ascend to Gibeon. Now Gilgal is on the plain of the river of Jordan and Gibeon is in the mountain region. And so the journey is always going to be demanding for the troops to be able to go up and uh, to uh, fight and uh, you know we later read on in fact let's read on Um, and the Lord said to Joshua do not fear them for I have delivered them into your hand not a man of them shall stand before you verse 9 Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly having marched all night from Gilgal so having received this SOS from the Gibeonites they immediately get their troops together they march throughout the whole night uphill towards Gibeon and as I said it's a 3,000 foot ascent so this is this is quite something and I am I am blown away by the stamina of Israel because the journey from Gilgal to Gibeon is somewhere around about 25 miles and they march this throughout the whole night which is probably 12 hours it's taken them to get there now the average man walks um, what three miles uh, um, in, in an hour on flat ground but it is a lot less when it's up ground and it's a lot less when they've uh, got army equipment and swords and shields to carry with them and probably supplies as well so they've got to be moving at some rate and there's got to be some dexterity and strength there to be able to get up to Gibeon in time for morning light to launch this surprise attack upon this coalition of five Amorite kings and I'm, I'm just surprised because I, I just wouldn't be man enough for it um, it reminds me of a 
something that happened to me back uh, before I met Abby. I got a friend called Jez and um, he was with a girl called Catherine at the time. And the three of us stayed in Sheffield at his parents' house. And we thought it might be nice one day to go for a walk on uh, along the Peak District just outside Sheffield. So so off we went. And um, in my mind, we climbed a mountain. Uh, lesser people might say it was just a hill. But anyway, we got to the top of this mountain. And I don't know how long it took us, but we were absolutely exhausted. And I was done in. And so we sat down on this rock and we gasped for breath. And we just took time to be able to regather our strength. And in the distance, we saw this figure coming towards us. And it was a man with two sticks in his hand marching towards us. And as he came closer to us and more into focus, we realised he was uh, far senior to us. Anyway, he saw us sitting there trying to gather our breath, having a drink. And uh, he stopped to chat with us. And his name is Jerry. And Jerry was the nicest guy you could ever want to meet. Um, he was so friendly, so chatting, chatty. And uh, lo and behold, it was his 70th birthday. And he had come the same route as us, but he had come so much faster. And he was so much fitter. And he was so much stronger. And he put us to shame. He really did. So we stopped and we chatted for a bit. And this is in the days before um, uh, smartphones. But he had um, a, a digital camera. And this was like, like state of the art, I remember. We'd not seen one of these before. And uh, he was talking to us all about it. And he took a couple of pictures of us. And then he said, oh, can you take a picture of uh, take a picture of me? So we took the camera. He showed us how it worked. And we said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't go in focus. Step back a bit. Step it back, back a bit. And then he almost fell over the side of the, the, the mountain that we're on. We're like, oh, no, no, Jerry, no, no. Anyway, he came back, we took the photograph and he said what he'll do is he'll resize them and email them to us, which I didn't have a clue how to do. So he was outstripping us not only in strength, but in technology as well. And then off goes Jerry and uh, he marches off with his uh, two poles off into the distance. And about the same time that he became a dot on the horizon, we found that we had enough energy to be able to move on and uh, carry our journey and I think about that story and uh, um, I think to myself when it came to Joshua and Israel they were of the character of Jerry they weren't in the character of myself Jez and Catherine because we were absolute wimps and to be able to take on that journey was was something else and uh, oh yes I looked up there there there's me and there's Jez on that trip and we did get a picture of Jerry. There's Jerry there. It's not very clear, but there he is with his two sticks. And as Jerry disappeared off, having almost tumbled over the side of the mountain because of our inability to be able to get him in focus, I remember Jez turning to me and saying, oh, that was close, wasn't it? I would hate to have said we just met the nicest man in the world and then we killed him. Anyway, Joshua and Israel were like Jerry. <clears throat> So Joshua had learned his lesson from A and Gibeon and he consulted the Lord. And we know that because God spoke to him. He said in verse 8, Do not fear, for them, fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man shall stand before you. You know, when it comes to warfare, you do not make a move without first consulting the Lord and looking for his guidance. And here, the word that the God gives is one of extreme encouragement. Don't be afraid because 
I am with you and none of them will be able to stand before you. Now, I don't know what else. There's probably more communication that uh, the Lord gave Joshua. Maybe it was God who gave Joshua the idea of this surprise attack upon the five armies first thing in the morning. But what I realise is that when it comes to battle and warfare, half the battle is about turning up. Joshua had a choice there when he received that message from the Gibeonites in the camp at Gilgal. Do we leave the security of Gilgal? Go on this all night march up to the top of the hillside of the mountainside to join them? Or do we just throw the towel in? But he chose to honour the covenant and to make that journey. And it's because, you know, and, and God had already promised that victory was assured. He said, all you need to do is turn up for the battle and I will do the rest. And it is the same for us. We need to turn up for the battle and then God will be there to make sure that we get victory. Every day, whatever our day might hold, there is a battle to be fought and to be won for Jesus. But the question is, will we turn up for the battle? Will we come to God for a devotional time first thing in the morning before we go to work, before we start the day? If we decide to turn up and spend that time with God, then we are in a better place to secure victory with whatever the day throws at us. You know, there is always a blessing to be had at a church meeting, a lesson to learn, an encouragement to receive. But the question is, will you turn up? And that really is half the battle, turning up. Once you turn up, God will be there and he will help you win a victory. And so we carry on reading. Joshua therefore came up uh, upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. And so the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekar and Machadar. So the engagement begins at Gabion and the combined forces of the five Amorite kings are not only caught by surprise, but are being slaughtered dramatically. So they go along the ridge there from Gibeon down south, uh, 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 almost like on a plain uh, to a place called Beth Haran. And then they go down towards a valley called Ezekar towards a place called Makadar. Now, we're not too sure where Makadar is, so that... Um, point on the map is just somebody's guess. Other people have guessed other locations. But realising that they're outgunned and outmaneuvered by Israel, these five armies retreat south towards Makadar. But just when they might have thought they were going to get away, we're going to see that the Lord joins the fight. In verse 11, And it happened as they fled before Israel or on the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekar, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the children of Israel killed with the sword. So here we have uh, an artistic impression of these hailstones coming down from heaven. And it's always good when the Lord turns up, isn't it? It's always good when you're in a prayer meeting and suddenly you realise the Lord is there. You can feel his presence. And it's not just your words coming out of your mouth, but God has given you vocabulary and he's guiding you in prayer. And it's 
It's always good when the Lord turns up during worship and suddenly you feel the presence of the Lord and it just seems to lift the worship and you're carried into the presence of the God, into the presence of the Lord. And indeed, it must have been uplifting for Israel to see uh, God arrive in this battle. And praise God that God has never manifested his presence in our meetings in quite this way. But uh, we see that giant hailstones fall from the sky and strike the Amorites. And this is not just some random meteorological event that can be explained away because the Israelites are not struck by the hailstones. It's only these this coalition of the five Amorite kings and their armies that are being struck. These are target guided hailstones aiming solely for the Amorites. And I've got to say the Gibeonites must be definitely praising the Lord for that alliance that they made with Israel right now when they see this. And the death count under the Lord's hailstones far outstrips the death count under Israel's swords. And when we read about this account of these hailstones coming down and striking the enemies of the children of Israel, it can't help but call to memory what happened during the ten plagues that struck Egypt when Israel was uh, under slavery to them. We know that um, in Exodus 9 verses 13 to 35 we read about the seventh plague that fell upon Egypt and that was hailstones as well. And what was interesting is that hail struck the whole of Egypt with the exception of the land of Goshen where Israel dwelt. The hail struck only the enemies of God, not the people of God, just as the hail here struck only the enemies of God and not the people of God. Pharaoh's reaction was very telling in that account in Exodus 9. Pharaoh said, the Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. That's verse 27. So when you see the Lord act in judgment like this, it brings you to an awareness of the righteousness of God and your true wickedness. And this must have been the realisation on the uh, people of the land of Canaan. And such an attack from heaven on the Amorites was a wake-up call. Not only to the Amorite kings, but also to the remaining tribes and the peoples and the cities in Canaan. And I can't help but feel as if this is something of the grace of God, because even as judgment is on the land, God is graciously calling people to repentance, graciously calling them to the awareness of the reality of existence, giving them an opportunity to escape by turning to him. But we know that, that even though they, these warnings came, even though these signs, even though these miracles came, the, children, uh, sorry, the people of Canaan did not heed them. I'm also reminded, as I think about these hailstones falling upon the enemies of God, that both Exodus and Joshua in some way foreshadow what will happen in the future. There is a period of seven years that the Bible foretells of that precede the second coming of Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom on the earth. That uh, seven year period is commonly called the tribulation. And during that period of seven, uh, seven years, God pours out a series of judgments upon the, upon the earth and upon those who are defying the Lord God Almighty. And in the seventh bowl judgment, we read in Revelation 16 verses uh, 17 to 21, we read, 
and great hail from heaven fell upon men, every hailstone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Just as the children of God did not experience judgment in Egypt, they were safe in Goshen, and just as in this case here, um, Israel uh, Israel was safe and the hail only fell on the Amorites. There is a time in the future when God will send hail upon the, the enemies of God upon the earth to kill them. But the children of God will be safe. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Because prior to that seven year period, the church will be caught away in what is called the rapture and they'll be safe with God in heaven. God always looks after those who are faithful to him. God always looks after his children. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not experience the wrath of God. We experience the salvation of God. Now we come to a second miracle in our account. We read, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it. The Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Despite the Lord's intervention with hailstones, the fighting continues, and uh, there was not enough time in the day to complete the battle. And so Joshua speaks to the Lord in faith and calls for the sun to stand still, i.e., for the day to be extended in length so that they can complete the battle and they can defeat this Confederate force of the five. Amorite cities and the Lord grants the request and so Israel continues to fight an extraordinarily long day to complete the battle. No wonder these men were called mighty men of valour. They'd marched all night, fought all day and then that day was extended even further. There must have been um, supernatural strength given to these Israeli soldiers for them to be able to um, continue fighting. Possibly when the hailstones fell, it gave Israel's armies a chance to be able to rest and recuperate. We don't know. But what we do know is that when we go to fight a battle in the name of the Lord, the Lord fights with us. When we go to fight a battle in the name of the Lord, the Lord gives us his strength. When we pick up the sword of the spirit to fight, the Lord not only fights for us, but he fights with us and he gives us the strength to do that battle. But what are we to make of this miracle? How did it happen? Well, there have been many explanations given by many scholarly people down through the years as to what happened to be able to make the sun stand still for this length of time. And none of them are conclusive and we don't really know. Some people say that... Uh, um, what happened was that uh, that the, there was a slowing of the Earth's rotation, so the day just seemed to extend. Others say that there was a tilting of the Earth's axis, 
Some people talk about how there's a refraction of light. But who knows? I've, I've got no way of knowing what happened here. What we do know is that the day was extended. The sun somehow shone its light for longer than was usual. But we know that our God is the God of all creation. He created this world. He created the planets. He created the stars. He created the sun and the moon. And he resides outside of space. He resides outside of time. He resides outside of matter. And he has authority over them all. And by means that we cannot fully explain, he was able to change the events here to be able to extend the day. It's interesting that there are accounts in other societies of um, uh, an unusually long night on the other side of the world. Because, of course, if it's sunny in Israel, the other side of the world, it would be night. We have an account within the Maori people in New Zealand of an unusually long night around about this time in history. And within the Aztec people, there is a record of an unusually long night um, in Mexico, which time-wise would correspond roughly to when these events were happening in Israel. So it's interesting that there is historical records to support what happened, even though we don't know how it happened. But what we can be sure is that God performed a miracle. It reminds me of a verse from one of my favourite hymns, Praise My Soul, The King of Heaven, by Henry Francis Light. The final verse says, Angels help us to adore him, Ye behold him face to face, sun and moon bow down before him, dwellers all in time and space. Praise him, praise him, praise with us the God of grace. And here we see the sun and the moon bow down before the Lord God Almighty as he bids the day to increase. God is in control of the whole of creation. And if the sun and moon bow down but to him, how much more should we do so? Now, we know that this event is recorded in the book of Jasher because it tells us here in verse uh, 13, is, not, is this not written in the book of Jasher? Unfortunately, we do not have the book of Jasher. It's a non-canonical book and it seems to have been lost to antiquity. But it appears to have been a record of military battles. It was also mentioned in 2 Samuel 1, uh, chapter 18. But even though we don't have that book, we have this account here and we can trust and we can rely upon the account of Scripture. And I think we can all be agreed with Joshua when he says, And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. This was truly an amazing day. So we go on and reading in verse 15, we read. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Once the battle had been won and their covenant bound duty was complete, they returned to Gilgal. That's Israel headquarters. And uh, Gilgal marked the place of the crossing of Jordan. Gilgal marked the place of circumcision. Gilgal marked the place of the Passover. And all those things pointed them towards the Lord. And it's important that we continually return to the Lord. We continually return to him, to draw strength from him, to draw nourishment from him, to draw encouragement from him. He is the source of our life, our faith and our service. And really, apart from him, we can do nothing. 
Then we read on in verse 16. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave in Makedar. And it was told Joshua, saying, the five kings have been found in the cave at Makedar. And so Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear ranks. Do not allow them to enter their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. So this is almost like fill in detail about what happened during the battle, but it's tagged on to the end of the the account to tell us about it. And uh, as the five Confederate armies were fleeing towards Beth Haran and the the rocks, the hailstones were coming down. The five Amorite kings hide themselves in a cave at Makedar. Now, the price, precise location of Makedar is not known, so we don't know where this cave is. But uh, what we do know is probably on the descent down from Beth Haran, and they find a place to be able to conceal themselves. And, you know, when it comes to this sort of conflict, people think, well, there's only two options, fight or flight. And uh, but these five kings found a third option, namely hide. And it would have worked if they hadn't been found. And so there they are hiding in this cave. And obviously some Israeli soldiers fall upon them and they report back to Joshua. But Joshua is in the midst of battle. He doesn't have time to divert his attention towards what's going on here. It's more important that they capture and they kill as many of these Amorites as possible. So he says, wall up the the entrance to this cave, put bricks over it or rocks, big large rocks over it, and we'll come back to it later on it. So that's what they do. And uh, so they press on with the fighting and they're able to slay the rest of these Amorites who are fleeing before them. I say they're able to slay them all. There are some Amorites that we read there at uh, uh, the end of verse 20, where it says that those who escaped entered fortified cities. Some of the Amorites were able to actually get to some other cities and go and take refuge in those. And although it might have been safety for them, it was only a temporary relief, a temporary respite, because we will read later on how the through the southern campaign, all these other cities were taken by Joshua. They might be safe for now, but they're not safe forever. And uh, when I think about these five kings um, hiding themselves in the rocks, hiding themselves in the mountain, hiding themselves in this cave to try and escape this judgment that's coming from these hailstones coming down and from the armies of God. It it has another illusion to me, another foreshadowing of the events that occur during these seven years of tribulation that precede the second coming of Jesus Christ. Prior to the Messiah establishing his kingdom upon the earth. We read there in the book of Revelation, that upon the opening of the sixth seal, a tremendous upheaval occurs in the celestial bodies, which causes men to flee for their lives. And in verses 15 to 16 of Revelation 6, we read, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath 
of the Lamb. But no matter where you run, no matter where you hide, if you are destined for judgment, God will seek you out and God will find you, just as these five kings will sought out and found you. Found. Now, yeah, there's that verse there from Revelation 6, 15 to 16. And now what's interesting is there is something called the Amarna tablets. Now here's a picture of an Amarna tablet and it was a clay tablet that can claim, that contained diplomatic correspondence between Egypt and Canaan and it dates back to this time. And what is most notable is it's not written in the language of Egypt, it's written in the language of Canaan, which is Arcadian. And what it communicates is um, the message between various kings and, and diplomats within the land of Canaan at that time with the king of Egypt. And there is uh, within these Amarna uh, uh, tablets record of communication between King Adonai Zedek and the king of Egypt. And it says, uh, having been translated, Behold, I say that the land of the king my lord is ruined. The wars are mighty against me. The Hebrew chiefs plunder all the king's lands. Behold, I, the chief of the Amorites, am breaking to pieces. And then he implores the king of Egypt to send soldiers to help him, directing that the army should come by, by sea to Ashkelon or Gaza and march from there to Jerusalem by the valley of Elah. And so we have actually a historical record here, an archaeological record of this king, Adonai Zedek, communicating to the king of Egypt, saying that we're being chased by these Hebrews and we're being um, slaughtered and we need your help. Please send reinforcements. So at some point he was able to get a message out and but it was all to nothing because, of course, they were fallen upon by the Israelites and uh, they were walled up and then eventually judgment would fall upon them. But this event here in chapter 10 of Joshua has, has historical um, verification in these Armana tablets. So what happens once the fighting's over? Well, we read in verse 21. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Machedar in peace, and no one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. So once the fighting was over, Joshua made a temporary camp at Machedar near this, this cave where he and all his troops could recuperate. This was a decisive and important victory for Joshua. The people of Canaan knew without doubt God was with the children of Israel. The two miracles of the hailstones and the sun standing still proved this uh, to utterly defeat the Confed that they were able to utterly defeat the Confederate armies of the five cities, and it showed overwhelming military force. And this victory, this overwhelming military force, the fact that God is with the children of Israel is is recognized throughout the land because no one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. The whole of Canaan was silenced as a result of what happened. Now, as the Christian walks towards maturity in Christ, uh, you're going to find that it brings many battles as you press forward in your walk. And there are times when there are victories that you win, 
that are decisive. You'll look back upon your Christian walk and you'll recognise a certain battle and a certain victory which was won and this was, and that it was decisive. Just as this battle um, against the five Amorite kings was decisive for Israel. This was the turning point. Canaan was silenced now and it gave all the confidence to Israel they needed to be able to take the rest of the land. And there's going to come a point where you turn a significant corner in your walk with the Lord, where you gain a victory, where you no longer look back and you start pressing forward even more fervently in your walk. I remember early in my Christian walk, um, I became a Christian at the age of 16 and I was part of a, a group called, we called ourselves Genesis. And we all came to faith at the same sort of time. And for that first three or so years, three or four years, we we're all very much interdependent upon one another. We all grew in faith together. Um, but comes the time when Genesis disbanded and I found myself stranded and by myself and uh, I had no longer my, my, my friends to lean upon and to rely upon. And I recognised that my faith had been more dependent upon people than upon God. Now, I can see this in retrospect at the time. All I knew is that I was struggling and I was finding it difficult. As some of my friends went to university, others went off to Soul Survivor to live. Uh, some compromised and some fell away. And the question is, well, what would I do? And for 21 months, I remember struggling very, with, with a real battle of trying to come to terms with what had happened. And then there was a period of a week where um, I, just, I, I stopped struggling and I thought, well, what do I know? Well, I know that Jesus Christ loves me. I know that he has died for my sins. And I know that I'm a sinner and I need to confess my sins to God. And if everything else is a blur to me, this is what I know. And so every day I came to God, I confessed my sins and I asked for forgiveness and I read a bit of my Bible and then I carried on. I did the same thing day after day. And that week was a turning point, was a victory in my walk with Jesus Christ, because at that point I no longer had a faith that was reliant upon my friends. I didn't have a faith that was reliant upon other people. It was a faith that was reliant solely upon God. I'd chosen to follow him and follow him by myself. And that was a decisive victory. And I moved forward from that point. And I do look back at that decisive victory and think that was a turning point in my walk. And we will all have those turning points, those decisive victories, which mark a significant step forward in our walk with God. So there's some mopping up to be done. Verse 22. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out these five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jamuth, the king of Lachish and the king of Eglon. And so it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who were with him, come near, put your feet on the neck of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. And then Joshua said to the captains, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do all to your enemies against whom you fight. So after the battle is won, it's mopping up time. And the first call of business is these five Amorite kings. So the 
the wall is brought down from this cave and the kings are brought before Joshua and the kings are made to lay down and the five five of Israel's captains put their feet on the king's necks which is a sign of subjugation and victory and uh, you know this is an important lesson that Joshua is trying to teach these captains and the future leaders of Israel that God has given them a victory and that they have no need to fear the enemies that they face. It's interesting, at the beginning of the campaign in Canaan, the Lord had spoken to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9, and God had said to Joshua, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And now Joshua, in effect, repeats these same words that he heard from God to these captains, so that they, they know from the Lord that all future battles will also have the same decisive victory. And that's the way it should be for us. We receive from the Lord. The Lord speaks into our life and then we take that and we are able to speak into other people's lives. We're able to equip other people's lives and give them confidence to move forward in their faith and walk with God. We should be looking to disciple others, encourage others in their forward movement with God. The Lord speaks to assure us of a decisive victory. And as we battle with the world, our flesh and the devil, there is a victory that is decisive and assured in Christ. It says in 1 John 5 verses 4 to 5, For whatever is born, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have the victory. We have victory by faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must always come back to Christ. We must always come back to that place of faith and trust in him because that is the source of our victory. And so the last two verses for this morning, verse 26 and 27. And afterwards Joshua struck the kings and killed them and hanged them on five trees and they were hanged on the trees until evening. And so it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. So the five Amorite kings are killed. They're hung on a tree until evening, which is, uh, and then they're taken down according to the law of Moses, which of course is the same thing that happened to Achan and his family a couple of chapters back. And the final resting place for these kings is in the cave where they took shelter, which is walled up for good. And to Israel, these are not only physical enemies that, uh, that they've been able to defeat, that they are spiritual enemies as well. And it illustrates that there is no place for spiritual enemies in our lives. They must be utterly defeated. They must be utterly buried so that they do not see the light of God, the light of day again. And the same is true in our lives. We must be ruthless in dealing with our enemies. We, uh, we, we need to defeat them thoroughly and bury them, never to resurface. And this can only be achieved with the Lord's help. Joshua put them to the sword and he hung them on the tree. And that's the same method we use. Now we might have a persistent and fierce enemy in the form of anger or envy or lust, or pride, 
or fear, you know, you, you, you take your choice. And the first thing that we do is we put that enemy to the sword. We read the word of God to see what that says on the subject and we gain a biblical perspective and we let the word of God hold our hearts instead of that particular sin, whatever it is. And then the second thing we do is we take that enemy to the tree and we know the tree is, is, is where Jesus Christ was uh, crucified. We take that sin, we take that enemy to the cross and we confess our sin and we, we crucify it at the cross. And each time that we confess sin, we weaken our hold on its hold upon our life. And each time we bring it to the cross, it is crucified that much more. And each time we read the word of God upon that matter, that is what takes the place in our hearts and gives us and leads us to a place of greater victory. Simply trying to bury it in our own strength is not going to do the job. It will only serve to allow it to fester and eventually it will resurface it in a more ferocious manner. What we must do is to put it to the sword and bring it to the cross. So, Joshua had experienced something of a failure and a defeat in the previous chapter when he had failed to consult the Lord concerning Gibeon and he had to make a co and he made a covenant with the people with whom he should not have made a covenant. But God took that failure and turned it in this chapter to a tremendous victory. He took that which was a mistake and he, and he brought glory from it in defeating these five Amorite kings and their associate enemies. And it is inevitable that in our Christian walk, we're going to meet failure. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do things that we regret. But that shouldn't mean that we give up, that we, we just sit down and wallow because we've got it wrong. We should get us get back up, shake ourselves down, put our faith in Jesus Christ. Because he will take that which was a defeat, that which was a failure, and he'll turn it around for his glory and he'll bring victory through that. When we're with Jesus Christ, we're, the, we're with a victor and everything works to the good for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that which we have seen in the book of Joshua this morning. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be those who are faithful in the battle against sin as we encounter it in our lives. With the assured knowledge that we will gain a victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to take up the sword of the Spirit and gain a biblical perspective upon our enemies. And Lord, help us to bring those enemies to the cross that they might be crucified with Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.